0: This is fortune's wheel a podcast history of the late middle ages i'm your host jonathan this is episode three a storm in every port i hope you enjoy the show Episode, we saw the proud elderman of Essex, Britnoth, bravely fall in battle against the Vikings. It's very hard to tell what might have happened had Britnoth not fallen, had he been able to continue to lead his men, had he been able to see the battle to the end. He might have witnessed the backs of the retreating Vikings as they escaped back across that causeway. He might have ordered another lobby of arrows had he still had Bowman standing at that point. He might have seen the Viking leader's body at his feet, dead or dying in the mud. He might have been the architect of a Saxon-dominant island from then on, under the leadership of his king, Ethelred, The Great? Hmm. The events of the next several decades might have played out much differently. There's simply no way of knowing for sure. History is aggravatingly stubborn with its secrets and what-ifs. However, what we do know for sure is that as none of that happened. The elderman fell, and short of the epic poem, the Battle of Malden, and a statue commemorating him today in the city of Malden, Britannath all but faded into the background of yet another Viking raid on the English mainland. We should be wary to allow such a figure and such an event to just fade away. This battle, as mentioned in the last episode, this battle is but a flicker of changes to come. The English rose up, and by all accounts, the battle ended as much, and as I dare say, a narrow Viking victory. Both sides took devastating losses. The Vikings, as far as we know, they didn't give chase, and they certainly stayed clear of the town of Malden itself. Had they seen a commanding victory, they would have most assuredly ransacked the town in a hey, while we're here, kind of way, but this didn't happen. The Vikings, for sure, re- retreated. Word of this battle reached Ethelred soon after, along with the message from, a, from the Danish king. Britnoth was dead. Malden was spared. Pay a tribute or suffer the consequences. So not one for arguing with Vikings at this point in his reign Ethelred capitulated. I mean, it was the Vikings of all people compromise wasn't exactly their strongest suit. Ethelred, known today as Ethelred the Unready, rather unfortunately actually. Well, see, he began to pay what is now called Danegeld. Essentially Ethelred pays what was 10,000 Roman pounds of silver, which if my math is correct, Is roughly 7,250 empirical pounds, or 3,300 kilograms today. He paid this to the Danish king, and raids will have ceased. Well, for a while, anyway. Every agreement the Vikings made should come with a tag reading, quote, for a while, anyway. You know, it's worth noting here, however, that Danegeld was not the term that would have been used until the Norman conquest of England many, many, many decades later. Rather, Ethelred would have called this tribute Gafol. But for the sake of this podcast going forward, we'll just refer to it, we'll just refer to Gafol as Danegeld for clarity. That's the word you'll see in most history books is Danegeld. So speaking of clarity, do you remember the lack of clarity as to whether it was actually Olaf Tryggvason leading the Vikings at the Battle of Malden? So just as a quick wrap-up here, quick review, we know that he was seen in the English Channel in the 980s through to 991, and these are from the Norman accounts of him taking port and and resting his warband. And we also know from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle manuscript that an Olaf was seen passing through the channel at that time. So though we don't know exactly where he went immediately after he left Normandy, we do know that he ended up in Norway shortly after the Battle of Malden took place. So over the course of the next three years, from 991 to 994, Danish forces, who could have also been the Viking fleet to attack Malden if it wasn't Olaf Tryggvason, See, they swelled in number and repeatedly attacked the English coastline, contrary to the Dane Geld collected to prohibit this kind of activity. Meanwhile, back, on the, back in England, Ethelred had fathered three children with his wife Elfgifu during this time. Not a lot is known about exactly who Elfgifu was. There are couple possibilities as to which family she belonged to, but the most likely of them is that she was the daughter of Thored, elderman of York in southern Northumbria. But any of her familial ties don't hit the records until almost 80 years after she passed away. Given the fact that Saxons really never married for love, Ethelred probably sought the support of his northern earldoms and so married Thored's daughter. Maybe as a buffer between his home in central England and any northern attacks from Vikings or or Picts. Elfgifu, she would die, we can only assume from childbirth, as she, between 991 and around 1002, would give birth to several children. In 990, so one year before Malden, she bore him a son they named Ethelstan. A quick connection about marriages Ethelred could have married off his son Ethelstan to one of Thored's daughters, according to contemporary record. And Ethelstan was listed as an atham or son-in-law of Thorred's, and was counted among the dead at the Battle of Ringmere in 1010. Elfgefu, though, she would have two more sons born in 991 and 992. Their names would be Ekbert, and then here's a name you got to remember, folks the famous Edmund Ironside. She also had a daughter named Idgif in 993. So, Æthelred was ready to focus on his kingdom. However, as mentioned, the years between 991 and 994 were hardly peaceful, despite the Danegeld delivered. Olaf Tryggvason was back less than a year after Malden, and the Saxons suffered yet another morale-crippling defeat. Though we're not exactly sure where it took place, in 992 Ethelred called several of his noblemen together, including Elfkefu's father Thored of York, and they amassed a small fleet to meet them off the coast. Not much is known, except only a few Saxons made it back, and Thorred was not counted among them. The raids continued, and this breach in the original 991 agreement. Came to a head when in 994 Ethelred heard the news of another fairly large Danish fleet heading up the River Thames toward London. It was time to sit down with these Danes and find a suitable agreement, one that might see the Vikings, ideally, out of England forever. After a small engagement in London, neither side was necessarily victorious, which laid the groundwork for such a conversation. It is yet another intersection in history, something we will be pointing out a lot throughout this whole podcast, where one simple decision, one death, or one battle had just enough of an impact to shift the story in one way or another. In this case, Ethelred would have had little to no bargaining power had the Vikings just swept right into London one of the larger cities on the island at the time, if not the largest, if they would have burnt it to the ground and forced Ethelred and the Saxon forces to their knees in submission. But again, that's not how it played out. Saxon forces, they held firm against their ferocious opponents, and Ethelred called a meeting. An agreement to recognize Danish companies already established in London and across England, remember, Vikings weren't just raiders, they were also farmers and traders too. As well as many thousands of pounds of silver and gold later, it's more that Danegeld, and a paper-thin peace treaty was reached. Oh, and one more thing. All death and destruction by the Danish Vikings over the past few years, eh, you know, they must be forgiven and forgotten. It was a tough one to swallow, but Ethelred was dealing with Vikings. So he agreed, hoping, again, for a lasting peace. Ethelred the Unready inadvertently earned the nickname when he was surprised by another uptick of Viking raids beginning in the year 997. Namely those in Devon and Cornwall in England's southwest corner. But first, another interesting thing happened in 994. Olaf Tryggvason. Yeah, this time we know with certainty it was him. Olaf visited King Ethelred. See, King Olaf of Norway, as he was known by this time, was already a converted Christian. However, Ethelred sponsored his recognition as such in the larger European Christian community. King Olaf promised never to return to England, and as far as we know, he didn't. But some of his Viking men stayed on, serving King Ethelred as mercenaries keep that in mind. Vikings serving as mercenaries. This is going to pop up again in the story of the Vikings' role in medieval societies. So between the brief uptick in raids in 992 and again in 997, Ethelred and his kingdom enjoyed a, a few years of, I want to say, normalcy. I mean, it was the usual verbal sparring with the various other kingdoms on the English island, like the Welsh principalities, for instance. And and of course all the Viking raids that were happening, uh, but it there was a bit of normalcy in terms of um, the way Ethelred's kingdom just continued to push right along, and so Ethelred was busy creating what would become a cornerstone of Western civilization's judicial system. Actually, it's called the grand jury. Now to be clear, it looked very little like the juries we enjoy today. However, it certainly marked a turning point and how judgment will be cast, and punishments doled out across the kingdom and beyond. Ethelred deputized twelve men, called Things, who will travel their region investigating wrongdoing. The Reeve will accompany them for the official collection of funds, and to enforce order within the authority invested in him by the king himself. If this doesn't already sound oddly familiar, these things, according to a law code uh, he issued in Wantage, in modern-day Oxfordshire, see, they also, would, they also had to, quote, swear on holy relics, which shall be placed in their hands, and that they will never knowingly accuse an innocent man, nor conceal a guilty man, end quote. He goes on to issue the authority to seize the man who then, quote, has business with the reeve. End quote. A reeve, prior to the Norman Conquest in 1066, was simply a local royal magistrate who could also collect taxes. In this case, this was the business referred to. The accused man would then pay a security while the investigation took place. So how is this similar to what we know today in many liberal democracies around the world? Okay, so let's break it down. Today, a jury at least here in the United States, consists of 12 jurors of your peers in criminal cases and sometimes fewer in civil cases. A sheriff maintains order throughout the hearing process, much like the Reeve's presence. Here, quick side note, communities and specific areas we might recognize as counties were then called shires. Like, yeah, like the the place where Frodo and the Hobbits live peacefully and all that. And a Reeve was imbued with the king's authority, which in the coming centuries would evolve beyond mere tax collection. Thus, the term Shire Reeve itself evolved over the centuries to be the top law enforcement in a county in today's states, to be called a sheriff. Kind of cool, huh? All right, back to the comparisons here. So traditionally, a witness places his or her hand on the Holy Bible, and swears an oath of good faith and truthfulness when being examined by lawyers, though other holy books can also be used upon request. And while the accused is in custody during the trial, a bail payment must be made to local law enforcement and corrections for an accused person to be released from jail during the investigation and trial. That was that security that was talked about. So there are a lot of different uh, similarities between what Ethelred was doing about a thousand years ago or more with what we see today. And I don't want to speak for every liberal democracy around the world, but I know for sure it's here in the States that way. So Ethelred in the year 997, again, laid the groundwork for the very judicial system we have today over 1000 years later. It's kind of neat. But see if only it were really that simple though there's there's that nuanced piece of history again Evidence shows King Edgar, King Ethelred's father, under Danelaw set up a similar system for local policing and judging of people accused of a crime so to give credit where credit's due a little goes to King Edgar as well However Ethelred looks to have streamlined it and for the times modernized it for efficiency and efficacy If anything, it was a step forward closer to resembling something we can appreciate. A jury of peers who looks at evidence, the evidence investigated, and then presents it uh, and then presented it in order to come to an accurate conclusion, which is then decided by a higher seat of authority to establish legal guilt as well as sentencing should someone actually be convicted. So again a lot has happened in ethelred's kingdom during the years between 991 and 997 much of it occurring in the realm of civic reform i hesitate to use the word peace to go back to that word but even a partial peace allowed an odd stabilization across the island not complete stabilization of course but a a slight reprieve that allowed for everyone to at least take a few deep breaths what's in store for the english the welsh The Scots, the Celts, the Picts, and the Irish will create ripples that, without exaggeration, they're still echoing today. So remember when I mentioned that context thing, when you look at history, it's good to have a context of things going on? Let's take a quick break from the 997 narrative to go back in time about five to six centuries, all the way back to the early 400s. Just go with me on this. Within the century, with Germanic peoples beginning to coalesce their powers and forming various mini-empires, such as the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Visigoths, we know so well as the, quote, barbarians of the north, who then stormed through Gaul and sacked Rome, you know, all that, what well, within the century, the eternal city of Rome collapsed once and for all. Okay, so there's a couple things to unpack here, which we will go into in more depth several episodes down the road here, but try to follow along as I whip through a few things here. First, the still-venerated St. Augustine of Hippo was writing his confessions around this time, as well as many other influential pieces that would restructure Christian thinking over the next 1,500 years. Second, This is the time of the Council of Ephesus, which was the third ecumenical council of its kind. It was called by the Roman Emperor Theodosius II in order to gather church leaders and thinkers to, at long last, settle differences in Christian doctrine. The history of the early church, from its formal establishment around the year 30 when Jesus of Nazareth founded his ministry, around this time in the early 400s. It's fascinating, to say the very least. But suffice it to say that around this time, the church was largely still in disarray. I would venture to say that Christians today would hardly recognize it. The first attempt at an official biblical canon was in Rome in the second century, but it was rejected. However, the 400s would be the century that a council would decide, more or less, the basic structure and content of the Bible we know today. However, it must be said that there were countless other books and letters that were accepted by various Christian groups from modern-day Iraq to Egypt and even Constantinople, not to mention Jerusalem itself. Books with secret conversations between Jesus of Nazareth and Judas Iscariot were circulated as fact as well as others that tell stories from the Old Testament time period, such as Judith, who's a Jewish widow who uses her wiles to deceive and defeat an Assyrian general and free her people. Many of these books are anachronistic and contain undeniable inaccuracies, so they're readily dismissed. However, at the time, scholarly acceptance was just taking hold, and people still pass these stories around, The Christian world would soon have one book, more or less, that would establish a complete text with which to unify the entire Christian world. This is good if you want to understand medieval, even late medieval uh, life and and culture. So it's good to kind of get these these contextual things out there in the early 400s. It's when the Christian church really started to take shape as a a single unit. And so finally, the third thing I want to talk about is, is to bring it back home to England to the mid to late 400s, it was also the time that, according to one legend, a Roman-British military commander led a British force to defend the island against the first invasion of Germanic-Saxon forces. We know this heroic soon-to-be king as Arthur Pendragon, or more popularly, King Arthur. Again, context is key. So, Early late for or late three hundreds early four hundreds here we go in the town of Tours in Gaul or modern day France, the Roman Church already held sway in local affairs, especially the Bishop of Tours. When Bishop Martin died in three ninety seven, a young dandy named Bryce would assume the role. Bishop Bryce wasn't exactly the most pious of church leaders and would let's say enjoy worldly pleasures, and received accusation after accusation of. We'll just call it wrongdoing. Each time being being exonerated by the council created to make a ruling on his behavior. That is until a peasant woman wound up pregnant, and Bryce was exiled under the threat of being stoned by the townspeople of Tours. They had had enough, and lower church leaders in the area couldn't really argue. He was sent to Rome and not allowed to return until the Pope freed him from sin. Seven years later, Bryce returned and assumed the role of bishop once more. He would serve as bishop of Tours until his death and became known as, as an incredibly pious and respectable church leader throughout Europe. After his death, Bryce became Saint Bryce. So all that said, let's, let's fast forward again 500 years into the future to King Ethelred's England. The Bible and St. Augustine's writings had steered and unified the church, more or less. The Saxons had eventually overtaken Arthur's legacy and, and became the undisputed rulers of Mercia in central England and expanded their territories across the island. And speaking of King Arthur, his name and his stories faded into the mists of the Dark Ages until they were but whispers of legendary times long before. Between 997 and 1001, there was another major uptick in violence around English, Welsh, and Irish coastlines from Danish Vikings, even when Ethelred and other leaders had paid their Danegeld. Then, a whisper. In the Bible there's a story, and mind you, at this point no historical evidence supports it, but there's a story that Herod the Great in Judea heard a prophecy that a boy was born who would become the king of the Jews, and dethrone him, Herod, from ruling all of Judea. So, Herod ordered what became known as the Massacre of the Innocents. All boys, under the age of two years old, were murdered en masse, minus one baby, named Jesus, whose parents received a visit from an angel in a dream, tipping them off to Herod's plan. So, they fled to Egypt. See, in ten o two, Ethelred also heard a whisper. This whisper, like Herod's a thousand years before, threatened not only Ethelred's reign, but most likely his family and his entire kingdom. Remember, Ethelred has agreed to Danegeld, but even though there wasn't an official Dane law established, not since nine fifty four when Eric Bloodaxe was driven from the island. There was still a very large population of Danes living there. This attack could, could really come from any direction, almost. There were even noblemen within his own kingdom who disagreed, vehemently some of them, with Danegeld, like Britnoth, who may still hold loyalty to their king, but for how long? Ethelred, ethelred has got to make a move, and soon. However, he had to tread carefully very carefully, as his first wife, Elfgifu, had recently passed away, and he wasted no time making a powerful alliance with another group of Norsemen through his marriage to Emma, the sister of Richard I, Duke of Normandy. That would be an alliance he would eventually be very thankful he formed. As we've seen, the Norman people traced their family tree back to a point of intersection with the Danish and other Scandinavian people. So what Ethelred did next was incredibly risky. Like Herod the Great, Ethelred decided to tackle the biggest problem first. Like Bryce of Tours 500 years earlier, Ethelred focused not on eternal judgment. Instead, he focused on more worldly pursuits of power and influence he ordered the slaughter of all Danes living within his domain, which took place on November 13th, St. Bryce's Day. This would become known as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre and would serve to be another turning point, like Britnoth's choice a decade earlier at the mouth of River Blackwater. All, by the way, meant all. And all... Included the Danes living within a region of Ethelred's kingdom known as Devonshire in England's southwest. The elderman of Devonshire, in fact, was named Palag tolkesson And Pallig-Tolkesson was married to Gunnhild. And Gunnhild, she was most likely the daughter of Harold Bluetooth. Yes, the same guy we get the symbol for our Bluetooth capabilities on our smartphones, but that's not why he's famous. Harold Bluetooth's son... Are you following where this is going? Was Swain Forkbeard, the current king of Denmark and leader of the Scandinavian world at that time. So before we get into the massive fallout Ethelred's decision would have, can we please take a moment just to celebrate some of those Viking names? I mean, these names are legendary. Here are just some of my favorites, okay? So some of you will probably recognize them. We have the ones I've mentioned already Harold Bluetooth, Swain Forkbeard, Palig Tokusin, Eric Bloodaxe. But how about these? Ivar the Boneless, Gunstein Berserk Killer, Olaf the Witchbreaker, Harold Wartooth, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, and Helif the Castrator of Horses. But by far my two favorites that I've come across are Thorir Trollburster, and Eisteen Fowlfart. I mean, how on earth can this episode possibly continue after that? Well, the Vikings were about to let loose their dogs of war and bring this Saxon king to his knees. I titled this episode, A Storm in Every Port, and I need to give credit where credit's due. I saw this quote first used as the title of an online article by Deborah Statler for History.net. Her article was regarding our old friend and king of Norway, Olaf Tryggvason, who actually was dead by the time of the St. Brice's Day Massacre. And I thought it better fit for this podcast by using it to describe the, the havoc and the change that Swain Forkbeard was about to bring to England, to all their ports, their towns, their cities, Written in the 13th century, the Chronicle of John Wallingford tells us that Swain Forkbeard would lead almost non-stop attacks on England, from 1002 to 1009. However, that's a really rough life, so he deputized a Danish Viking named Thorkel the Tall, another great name, to lead the Danish forces between 1009 and 1012. One Saxon highlight, and arguably their only highlight during this time, was from a nobleman of East Anglia, named Ulfsetl Snillinger, who, though defeated outside Thetford, gave Forkbeard's forces such a grand beating that they were forced to retreat to Denmark in 1005 for a spell. In the meantime, we can't forget that Ethelred's new wife, Emma of Normandy, is setting up chess pieces that actually won't be in play for at least another decade. But these pieces will continue to shape North Sea politics for decades. I can't stress enough how important Emma is to, the, to this narrative arc. And after her wedding in 1002, she gave birth to her son, Edward, in 1003. In 1005, she gave Æthelred another daughter they named Goda. And finally, at least for this part of her life, you'll find out what that means later, she had her last son with Æthelred. Named Alfred Etheling in 1005. So to summarize, Ethelred II married Emma of Normandy in 1002. They had three kids over the next three years named Edward, Goda, and Alfred Ethling. Edward, Goda, Alfred Ethling. Don't forget those names. So the Vikings returned in 1006, and by 1007, Ethelred threw his white flag again and paid for two years of peace across England. There, there was rebuilding, and there was time for mourning, and, and there was a time for reestablishing trade networks and whatnot. However, this was also a time of intense fear, you can imagine. Everyone, even Ethelred, at this, at this point in history, knew the Vikings would return. In Frank Stenton's book, Anglo-Saxon England, he claims that, quote, The history of England in the next generation was really determined between 1009 and 1012. End quote. "Not only was Ethelred allowing for his people to slowly heal, but he was also taxing them heavily in order to build a naval fleet, something fairly new to the Saxons of England. This obviously shows that Ethelred and his noble families fully expected a return of the Danes. Things were going pretty well until one of its commanders decided to peel away and use his new force for piracy, a practice their small fleet couldn't counter." Æthelred had to eat the cost as well as the humiliation, and according to Stenton, the humiliation left an an unbearable wound on the morale and psyche of the English kingdom going forward. As mentioned, Swing Forkbeard stayed home and allowed Thorkel the Tall to attack England, and he started in Kent. It was the largest Danish force to approach English shores, uh, shores since before Æthelred was even born, over 40 years before. The Danes meant business at this point. Thorkel the Tall, man, he was no joke. The Viking scourge this time was relentless, and Ethelred was forced to pay another Danegeld for a reprieve. And I should point out that each one of these Danegeld payments since Malden in 991, about 20 years ago, were increasingly larger and larger and larger. This must have only come through higher and higher and higher taxes, which of course, weighed really heavily on the peasant and noble populations in England. So Thorkel the Tall landed in Sandwich first, but was paid off not to attack those in Kent. He then led his men to London, but after several attempts, he was dissuaded and turned toward Canterbury, the seat of the Archbishop in England. They arrived in September of 1011 and then set up a siege on the city of Canterbury, which eventually led to the capture of Archbishop Elfe Or Elfea, excuse me. Fun fact, by the way, the same archbishop, Elfea, who converted Olaf Tryggvason and oversaw the 994 sponsorship of Tryggvason by King Ethelred. So, same guy. Now, this next part is really interesting to me. It calls into question exactly how much influence and power a Viking leader had over another Viking. This idea of one person controlling a vast majority of others is a fascinating one, especially in a situation in which a large part of those under your rule were people like Berserkers and svinvilking and other military orders the Vikings had. And it'll, put, and it'll all be put to the test here after the kidnapping of Archbishop Elfea. Just south of London, in Greenwich, Thorkel's men set up camp. They were rich in both loot and morale so they did what Vikings were stereotypically want to do. They celebrated. The stereotypes of the giant, hairy, bearded Viking drinking mead out of his battle-dented and blood-smeared horned helmet while pushing and shoving the men around him, trying to either be the one to tell a story of how they exploded a man's skull with one swing, or be the one to capture the affections of a lovely, I don't know, Hilda or Gudrun or Ulfhild. Let's see... These all come from an epic story of a Danish folk hero written in Old English just a century or or so before Thorkel's men partied outside London, which was called Beowulf. It was loud. It was raucous. And it's probably a bit of a stretch here, but go to any college town bar on a Friday night and the details would still follow the same sad pattern, I'm sure. And hey, it's safe to say, though, as a point of clarification... That there's a much better chance of finding a horned Viking helmet there than you would than you would on some Viking's head a thousand years ago. So there they were, Thorkel's men partying while Thorkel was busy trying to extort the archbishop for some money and valuables in exchange for his release. The men became annoyed, and then the men became angry. Thorkel, at first quelled the men turning them around and going back to, the, to his fruitless no- negotiations. The archbishop, he wasn't budging. But it wasn't long before the mead ran a little lower and the temper, tempers ran just a little higher. They returned and they overwhelmed Thorkel, and they proceeded to beat the archbishop with the bones of a cow. It was a brutal display of dominance and drunken chaos. There was no leader These Vikings were a single unit except for one who ended the whole affair with a single blow to the back of Elfair's head with the blunt back of an axe. A sharp crack was heard as the holy man's skull bone exploded. Elfair was dead. Thorkel was disgusted. Again, at the end of the day, what sort of control does one man have over another, or better yet, over any number of them? It's really a question we can apply to anything regarding an authority figure or organization, and I promise it's a question that we will return to throughout this podcast. Thorkel and his men would establish dominance over most of southern England. However, his patience it's worn, it had worn thin. Shockingly, in ten thirteen, just as his king Swain Forkbeard was launching one last massive grab for power over all of England, Thorkel and forty eight ships worth of men suddenly defected to Ethelred and became an ally to the Saxon cause, but as, as we know very well by this point in the story, very little is permanent with the Viking mindset. Thorkel's defection hurt like pretty badly because Thorkel the Tall had been around a long time since a, like at least the 980s fighting for his Danish kings. He was a tremendous asset to Denmark and was already being sung about in contemporary Viking sagas. He would still go on to be a tremendous asset to Swain Forkbeard's successor, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. This guy, he was almost like the Achilles to Forkbeard's Agamemnon. It still couldn't have settled well with his former king, though. Despite this setback, Swain Forkbeard would once and for all establish himself as, arguably, the greatest Viking leader of all time during his 1013 invasion of England. And it seems like It's one of those situations where, you know, you pull a jar out of the pantry and you just can't open it. Some guy nearby is like waiting for the chance to show you up, right? He tries all the tricks. He wipes the sweat from his hands and twists. He puts his shirt on the lid and twists. He takes a butter knife and lightly bangs the handle on the edge of the lid and twists. He twists until he's white knuckling the jar's lid. Breathless, he hands it back and says something about not being any way to open the jar then you take one last face reddening try at it and the jar pops open from the time Swain Forkbeard set sail from Denmark to the time he gathered every inch of Ethelred's kingdom under his command we're talking a mere matter of months Ethelred along with his family his court and a decent you know contingent of soldiers fled the 20 or so miles across the channel to Normandy the home of his wife, Emma. As I said earlier, Ethelred was most certainly overjoyed at his brilliant move to marry into the house of Rollo, who was the founder of the Duchy of Normandy. And as history has a way of offering a kind of karmic resolution to things, within a month or two after this great king of Denmark, Swain Forkbeard, crowns himself also as king of England, February 3rd, 1014 to be exact, he died. Swain Forkbeard was dead. This would usher in, if you can believe it, an even larger figure in Scandinavian history. This would be a name that would echo much farther throughout history than his father. He would would eclipse his father, like, by far. And while founding the largest and most influential Scandinavian Viking empire, yes, empire, they had yet seen, or would yet see, England would see devastation as well as a restructuring that would redirect its future into situations so inconceivable in 1014 that not a single contemporary person would believe you if you told them. Now, as we close out this episode, I want to I thank all of you who are listening and sharing this podcast. I'm overwhelmed at the support and growth so far, frankly, though we are still in this podcast's infancy please continue to like and share our Facebook page and head over to Twitter if you haven't yet and follow and share the podcast there at atwheelpodcast. And most importantly, please subscribe, rate, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Anchor, or any podcasting service you use. I can't stress how important your feedback and public support mean to the growth of a show. Thank you in advance. We're going to step away from the England of 1014 because there were several things happening in the area as well as with the Vikings that I feel are crucial for a more well-rounded understanding of this turn-of-the-century North Sea region of Europe. Believe me, I can't wait to return to our narrative of England's incredibly turbulent 11th century and see how Ethelred handles losing his lands as, as well as how Swain Forkbeard's successors manage without him. But how can we talk about the Vikings in the year 1000 and fail to mention what other Scandinavians are doing in the far northern reaches of the quote unquote known world? Next time we will pan over to the north and the west to get a glimpse of the dynamic nature of the highly influential Scandinavian people, specifically those who venture off the map. We'll take a little trip to Iceland, Greenland, and some places you may not have heard about. Places with names like Heluland, Markland, and Meadow. I can't wait to tell you about it.